0: going to be reading for us today. We're going to be in Ephesians 4, starting in verse 17 and going through 24. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their hearts. created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is the word of the Lord.
1: You ever wonder why we do the things that we do? Not just the superficial level of like, I see what I'm doing. Sometimes I like what I'm doing. Sometimes I don't like what I'm doing. But do you ever dig into why does my thinking, why does my desiring work this way? When I was a kid, I used to love taking stuff apart to figure out, like, not just that this works, but I wanted to know how it worked a certain way. So I learned a lot about, like, little DC motors that power a lot of the things around your house, little appliances. Um, I remember dismantling clock radios, my mom's hair dryer, my dad's electric razor. There were some tools in the garage that I took apart. And um, I don't mean to brag, but I literally never fixed anything. Um, I took stuff apart and was like, I'm going to figure out why my dad's razor no longer works. And then I would, after hours and hours of understanding a little bit more about oscillators and brushed motors and all this kind of stuff, I would put it back together and deliver it just as broken as it was before. But I did learn some things about how the inner workings of these tools and appliances are supposed to work. Uh, many years later, I became interested in a similar dynamic with the human heart. Not the physical organ, because I, I, you know, just blood and stuff. I'd never had interest in like cardiology, but I did have interest in psychology and kind of the psyche of how, how does the human mind work? How does the human heart, um, again, not the physical organ, but kind of the spiritual organ Like, how does it do? Why does it do the things that it does? Why do we think what we do? Why do we say what we do? And I think important for the text we come to this morning, how do people change? Um, This text that we come to this morning in our study through Ephesians clearly shows us that following Jesus means a transformed life or a walk. Paul uses the word walk. He uses it at the very beginning of this chapter, if you look at like 4.1, he's calling us into a new kind of walk, which is a lifestyle. And the idea of walk, I love it because it's just like you're, you're putting one foot in front of the other and you have a trajectory. It's like I know I'm going toward this destination, but the reality of our everyday lives, every one of us, is it's just putting one foot in front of the other. And very often there's only one next decision that we can make and then the next and the next, So he's calling us to walk, not as we used to walk, but as Jesus himself walked. So we must change to call ourselves followers of Jesus. But what's important is changing, following Jesus is not simply a matter of Stopping bad stuff and starting good stuff and hoping that somehow that trickles down into our hearts, into our minds, and changes the way we think and the way we desire. In other words, Christianity is not simple behavioral modification, and it's certainly not behavioral modification from the outside in, where we do something superficial or even moralistic, hoping that it ultimately changes us. It's actually the other way around. Christianity, following Christ, is an inside-out transformation. God wants to do a work in our hearts. God wants to do a work in the way that we think, in the way that we desire. And then our actions change so we look like Jesus. I'm calling this message, Get Your Mind Right, because the Apostle Paul, if I had like one theme for this text, Paul is saying a renewed mind is the key to a transformed life. You'll notice here his emphasis on the mind, verses 17 and 23. He talks about our minds, verse 18, our understanding, verse 18, our ignorance, verses 20 through 21. He talks about learning things that we've been taught. He talks about truth, and he's going to show us why we used to do the things that we did in this former person that we were before we met Jesus in faith, and he's going to show us not only that we can do new things, but how we can do new things. Okay, and let's look at these in both logical and chronological order. Kind of he goes through this. So the first couple verses here are about the futility of human thinking. The next couple verses are about the focus of our renewal. And then the last couple verses are about the freedom of gospel thinking. So it goes from futility to this focus to this now freedom and fulfillment in Christ. And you can think of it this way point one is kind of like before. Like yesterday, I posted some before and after pictures of our home that we're remodeling. So it's like the first couple of verses are your before picture. The last couple of verses are your after picture. And the intervening verses are like, how did we make that change from this to this? So we begin with kind of the negative, okay? Verses 17 through 19, Paul talks about the futility of human thinking. And what I mean is like merely human thinking or natural, normal, ordinary, unredeemed human thinking. Look again at verse 17. He says, "Now, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do." And I think if Paul were walking around Denver today, he would say something like this. "You must no longer walk as the Americans do." That's the weight of what he's saying. And you might think that he would immediately launch into this laundry list of sins. Stop living like the Americans. Stop living in idolatry and immorality and carnality and materialism and greed and anger and frustration and conflict. But notice he actually doesn't start with specific sins. Instead, he grieves what he calls this futility of mind. What he's saying is the core problem apart from Jesus is not this specific sin or that specific sin, the core problem apart from Jesus is that our entire way of thinking is empty. It's meaningless, it's useless, it's vanity. I mean, just imagine playing an entire round of golf, 18 holes, and you think the entire time you're playing, the objective is to get the highest score like every other sport. And you get to the end and you're like, what? That was futile. That was empty. I, like, I just spent four hours of my life and $100 and lost a bunch of balls and got the high score. And I think what he's saying is we in our unredeemed state are doing something very similar to that. Imagine living your entire life thinking the objective is financial success or the objective of life is career Success, the next promotion, and then the next promotion, and then the next, and we're we're always going up and to the right, and we're like that is what life is all about. Or maybe you even think like the objective of life is just being a good person, and getting to the end of life and realizing that wasn't the point. Self gratification wasn't the point. Accumulating stuff wasn't the point. Retirement wasn't the point. Being a good person wasn't the point. It was meaningless in the grand scheme of things. Now, let's, let's back up because it's interesting what Paul does now in verses 18 through 19 that he kind of reverse engineers the way we behave. So instead of just looking at the outcome of like you're doing bad stuff, stop doing bad stuff, he's going to take several steps now in verses 18 and 19 to say, well, why do you do that? It's because of this. Why do you do this? It's due to this other thing. And as we back up through the text, kind of chronologically and logically, we begin to understand more and more about how we think, how we act apart from Jesus. So verses 18 and 19, again, he says, They, and this is, this is the unredeemed, this is all of us before Jesus, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality Greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So notice Paul says, futility starts with what? It starts with a hard heart. It's interesting, the word kind of comes from our word porous. It was used in the ancient world to literally refer to a stone that's hard like marble. Uh, I I noticed that our new house, we're getting these stains on our countertop. So talk to the the people that supplied this marble or stone or whatever. well, How do we fix this? And like, well, you, you can't seal it because it's such a hard stone. Nothing will seal it. You just have to take out the stains as they happen. So he's coming from a word in the Greek language that means it's a hard stone like marble. When applied to the heart, he's talking about a stubbornness. It's a heart that refuses to budge, a heart that refuses to be penetrated with truth and love. He goes on to use the word callous here, which we understand what that is. Um, a callous, like on your skin, obviously like often on your hands or your feet maybe, is, is building up layers of skin that kind of doesn't feel the way that the other layers of skin on other parts of your body feel. And there's a protection to that. Once a year when I pick up a guitar and play G, C, and D chords, because everyone knows how to play G, C, and D (laughs) chords, Uh, it hurts my fingertips after a while. But guitarists, like you've built up those calluses because you've done that so many millions of times that you don't have that same sensitivity to pain. And that can be a good thing, it can be a bad thing, but when applied to our spiritual life, it's a bad thing not to feel spiritually. It's a bad thing not to have sensitivity Spiritually, sensitivity to the conviction of God, where you, you may know in your head, I'm doing something wrong or I'm, I'm on a wrong track, but you just don't feel conviction or shame. I, I mean, in a healthy way. A calloused heart prevents you from sensing the worthiness of God. A calloused heart is a heart that just starts with saying no to God. And the, you know, the most famous example of this in scripture is probably Pharaoh. When Moses comes to Pharaoh and says, like, God, Yahweh says, let my people go, and he hardens his heart and just says, no, I don't care who your God is, my answer is no. And over and over again in the book of Exodus, that's referred to as a hardened heart. So it starts with that hard heart, saying no to God, building up this callous of like, I don't don't want to feel conviction. I don't want to feel shame. I don't want to see the worthiness of God because I'm pursuing the worthiness of something else right now. But then in your will or against your will, step two is Paul says that hardness of heart then produces, and he uses two descriptions here, it produces ignorance or a darkened understanding. His point is not that non-Christians are dumb. It's not that they're not intelligent. Okay? His point is something's preventing them from seeing correctly. In other words, they're spiritually blind. Okay? The lost can know a lot of facts, a lot of truth about God, about the Bible. But there's still this imperception of the beauty an imperception of that is what i'm giving my life to. They just don't see the beauty or the value of it. They know the same words very often that you and i know, but they don't like why why does this matter for my life? I just don't see it. You ever go on vacation somewhere you've planned ahead, so you kind of have some idea from the internet what it looks like, but you arrive at night and then you get up the next morning and as you open the windows or as you walk outside, the, the, the view just takes your breath away. We've had that experience a number of times. Well, imagine that that view is right there, but for you, the lights never come on. The sun never comes up. You never see that right there is this mountain range or this ocean or this forest filled with wildlife. You just don't see it. The same is true spiritually, spiritually. That a dark mind, as he uses that term, is a mind where the light hasn't come on. And that the, the awesomeness of God, the worthiness of God is right there, but you just don't sense it. So, heart is heart producing darkened understanding. And I was doing some reading this week and previous weeks. Um, Richard Dawkins, who's a famous atheist and scientist pushing secularism, is an intelligent person. But amongst many things that he says, he says this. He says, I've described, this is in the God delusion. He says, I've described atonement, the central doctrine of Christianity, as vicious, sadomasochistic, and repellent. We should also dismiss it as barking mad. Okay. Richard Dawkins' problem is not that he's not smart. It's not that kind of ignorance is that he can learn all about God sending his son to become one of us and take his, to take our sin on himself and lay down his life as a sacrifice to give us a free gift of a reconciled relationship with the Father and eternal life and all the riches of Jesus. And he says that is vicious and sadomasochistic and barking mad. No, it's Grace. And some of you, even as you hear that, you're like, it's an awesome truth. We love this truth. We receive this truth as good news. And the point of this hardened heart and darkened understanding is that someone else can hear the same thing and just be like, I don't care. In fact, I'm against that. Dawkins goes on to say on his website, critical thinking is the real savior of mankind. And he does a lot of critical thinking. And it's not saving mankind. Well, going on, So the outcome of a hard heart and a dark mind, then, Paul says, is a self-indulgent life. Get this irony. Our world plunges itself into reckless sensuality. Why? Because they don't feel anything. We see this with recreational drug abuse, where maybe you start with something like marijuana or just alcohol, but to get the same effect, the same buzz, the same hallucinations whatever the end that you're trying to achieve you have to do something greater and something greater and something greater and we're actually like creating as a culture synthetic drugs that do more and more powerful things more destructive things to the human mind the human body the human soul just to feel something I've read that as culture goes further and further into pornography the stuff that was like out there in the 70s and 80s with like Playboy is now just so boring and mainstream that it has to become more bizarre, more twisted, more violent to have the same effect. And and the, the reason for these kinds of things is because our culture becomes desensitized. As we turn away from God we have to seek a certain sensation in something else, and it takes greater and greater and greater things to achieve the same effect. It's like the law of diminishing returns. But we were hardwired for something transcendent, something eternal, something way above and beyond and otherworldly, and when we don't get that in a relationship with God, we instinctively turn to other things. Paul describes this differently in verse 22 as a life that chases after deceitful desires. And the word desires is literally the word over desires. He's not saying that any desire, any appetite is wrong, but he's saying we come to be controlled by deceitful desires, desires that over promise and under deliver. And I think in moments of clarity, you all know what I'm talking about. It's that, it's that lie. It's that desire that you tell yourself like, sleep with him. Maybe then he will commit to me because I'll have him locked down. Or get revenge because it'll feel good. Or start a really negative rumor about that person at work that's applying for the same position as you so you can undermine their opportunity and then you get the job and it'll feel good and right. Or buy that thing that you can't afford and it will satisfy you. See, we have, in our natural state, we have this whole chain of desires of just like, if I do this, if I have this, if I get this, if I say this, I'll be satisfied. And it's not true. Now, where does the, where does the chain reaction ultimately lead, verse 18, to being alienated from the life of God? Alienated is the idea of separation or estrangement. The I mean, Importantly, it's the opposite of belonging. Like, we were called to belong to God but instead, if we follow this chain, it ends with separation. So I want you to listen again. As Paul says this stuff, and it sounds, it's negative, okay? It's not, it's not a positive view of unredeemed life. But he's not saying Christians are stupid He's not, or non-Christians. He's not saying they're dumb. He's not saying they're as bad as they could possibly be. He's not saying that they're incapable of love or kindness or goodness or justice all he's saying is, there is a chain reaction happening in the inner person of someone bent against God that ultimately alienates them from life that's found only in God. And I have two applications of that before I come to really good news, okay? Um, number one, when you understand what Paul's saying, I hope it develops in you. If you're a follower of Jesus, it should create an empathy and a patience and a grace toward non-Christians. You're not angry. You're not just bent out of shape. You're not like, why can't you just be like me and like us? You understand like they're caught in this chain reaction of things that are lying to them and they're headed toward emptiness. And like Richard Dawkins, they think they figured out what the real savior is. And so you you can feel a grief and an empathy and I'm praying for them and longing for them You cannot just be angry and self-righteous. And I hope you also understand another application is why we don't go to non-Christians and just say, stop doing the bad things you're doing. Do good things like us. Because get this, specific sins are not the cause of the problem. They're a result of the problem. And the problem is hearts and minds that don't perceive the worth of God because if they did perceive the worthiness of God, if they had a soft heart instead of a hard heart, if they had an enlightened mind, an enlightened way of thinking instead of a darkened way of thinking, they would see the worthiness of God. They would receive the love of God. They would love him in return, and hopefully, like, you feel the right actions flow out of a right relationship. So, I think the solution to what Paul is saying, the problem is, is like, I want to live my life to show people the worth of God, the worth of Jesus. And say like, look, through our actions, through our life together as a community of Jesus followers, do you see the beauty? Do you see the grace? Do you see the patience? Do you see the forgiveness? you see the, the quest for justice for the marginalized? And all these things that Jesus was about, I want people to see that beauty and see it and see it and see it. And when they're not looking at it, direct their attention to it and shine a light on it and say, like, see what you're not seeing. Not I'm angry and I'm better than you, but see Jesus. And that leads us to the second point, the focus of our renewal In contrast to that former manner of life, Paul says, verses 20 and 21, but that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Okay, I love this because Paul's basically saying between the lines, he's like, if sin is not the problem, the heart of the problem, and I mean specific sins, surface sins, if those surface sins are not the heart of the problem, then the law isn't the heart of the solution. Because you notice he doesn't say, that is not the way you learned the rules from me. Okay, I was there, I planted this church. That is not how you learned religion. That is not how you learned the law. Because as a former Pharisee, which if you don't know, is like a, a religious expert who was a professional obeyer of the rules... That was Paul's former life, and he understands that that is empty, that is futile. Like you can multiply rules and laws and principles to live by, and that will never change your heart. So he says the focus of renewal is Jesus. Jesus is who changes your heart. And interesting enough, the word about actually isn't in the original letter that Paul wrote. So where he says here, again, verses 20 and 21 But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Now, this is an important distinction because Paul's not talking about merely learning about Jesus. He's talking about learning Jesus. He's not saying you you need to know truth about Jesus. He's saying you need to know Jesus. This is like where Jesus himself as he's talking to his disciples in John 17 says it this way he says and this is eternal life that they know you the only true god and Jesus Christ whom you have sent and you all know there's a big difference between the mental apprehension of facts about and actually knowing someone so the first speaks of like factual knowledge the second speaks of relationship and what Paul is saying here is the focus of our renewal is relationship. Now, the first is good. Let me, let me be clear. So if you're, if you're here and you're learning things about Jesus, I'm not like, no, stop. We don't want that. We do want that. But we don't want only that. And we don't even want preeminently that. That you would know Certain truths about Jesus, like the stories of Jesus from the Gospels or the character of Jesus or the promises of Jesus. All of that is important, but we need to know Jesus and pursue Jesus for himself. And that's this key. Having our minds renewed in relationship with Jesus is the key to this transformed life. So that brings us to this final point, the freedom then of gospel thinking, verses 22 through 24. And here's Jesus liberating truth. And basically, again, Paul is saying, this is Jesus' truth. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness. And holiness. And I call this the freedom of gospel thinking because notice Jesus wants you to be set free from something and he wants you to be set free to something. He's like, you are set free from that old, deceived, depraved, desire driven, death bound person that you were. That is no longer who you are in Christ. But he says, you are freed to what? You are freed to be like Jesus. His righteousness and holiness becomes yours. That's what we're after. I think it's interesting. Verse 24 repeats something we encountered all the way back in the first chapter of the Bible. Like kind of act one of the play of human history is creation and everything was good. Sin hadn't entered the equation yet. Hadn't entered the narrative. And God creates the first man and the first woman and says, you, male and female, are created in the image and likeness of God. And, you know, theologians can argue about, like, exactly what that means, but we were made to image forth our creator. And if you know anything about kind of the arc of Scripture, the storyline of Scripture, sin does enter the picture, and everything fell, and there's a curse, and that image of God continues in us, other chapters of Scripture say, but it is badly marred. Because like I interact with different ones of you, like I see these things that are like, that reminds me of the goodness of God or the justice of God or whatever. But we're, we're also simultaneously broken. And and what good news it is here that one of the pictures of our salvation is that God did not write us off and just say, you wrecked my image. You don't look like me. But he's like, no, I'm going to send my son. Jesus is going to come and he's going to chase after broken people who don't look like me. And I'm going to restore, I'm going to recreate that image and likeness of God. You will look like me. I will make you like me. I will make you righteous and holy, loving, caring like Jesus. And I I call this the freedom of gospel thinking as opposed to the futility of human thinking. Because first of all, I can't imagine any greater freedom than the freedom of being liberated from a hard heart, a dark mind, and futile life to fulfill our original created purpose. For the creators say, Here's your purpose, look like me. And then we live this whole life that's in chains and bondage, and we're getting run down, we're getting exhausted, and it eventually leads to, he uses the word corruption, which can mean like uh, depravity or then death. But God enters the picture and is like, I'm liberating you to fulfill that original created purpose that you can think my thoughts. You can love the way God loves people. You can forgive the way God forgives people. You are free to do justice as he does justice. You are free to walk in the power of the Spirit as Jesus walked in the power of the Spirit. You are free to speak words of truth and life and healing and hope as Jesus did. It's fascinating that our world and our culture as we're bound in these deceitful desires, we believe, we honestly believe the path to fulfillment, the path to freedom is autonomy. It's, It's just me having the authority over my own life to decide whatever I want to believe is true, is true, whatever I want to do, I'm going to do, and no one can tell me otherwise. And that is the path to fulfillment, and that is the path to freedom. And God comes and says, no, that is vain and empty. True freedom is not. Self-fulfillment; it is finding your fulfillment in Jesus. It is finding your satisfaction in Christ. And I close with this: if if this is what God is doing for us to transform us, to help us change, that He's literally giving us a new person. Basically, He's making us a new person. The Paul's application is now practice what is true. This is a lot of the end chapters of the letter of Ephesians. A lot of Paul, honestly where he's like, this is objectively true of you. This is positionally true of you. Like, you are righteous in Christ. Therefore, practice what is true. Like, live it day by day, what is true. And we'll come to next week, this, this first in a series of specific illustrations of this, where it's still connected to the gospel. It's still connected to, this is what Jesus is doing in you. This is what Jesus is doing for you. Now, because that's true, you know, you got to react a different way to the pressures in your life and the things that otherwise would make you angry. you got to speak a different way. It governs your relationships will come to in a different way. Practice what is true. And he uses this interesting analogy here at the end of this text where he's saying, you need to wear the clothing that's fitting for your role. Now, imagine that you were, just imagine, I know this is a stretch for some of you, okay, but you committed a horrible crime and you have spent years in prison, and the day comes where you have finally done your time, and you are set free, and you are walking out, would you continue to wear the same prison clothes out there as you had to wear in here? Or another example, I mean, God forbid, but something goes wrong with your septic tank, you got to put on the coveralls, you got to get in there, and you got to clear it out, and you clear it out, and stuff's working again, stuff's flowing again. Would you change clothes when you get out? And that's kind of the picture. Paul's like, there, there was a certain outfit that you wore as a prisoner. There was a certain outfit that you wore while you're mucking around in the filth. But now that that Christ has brought you out and renewed your mind and made you a new person, he's like, why would you go back and put that clothing on again? And he's talking about a lifestyle. Why would you live that way if I've enabled you and I've liberated you to live this way? And we were like, well, I wouldn't. I wouldn't wear prison clothes. I don't wanna be out there and be associated with this old person that I was. I don't wanna be associated with this like, stinky, filthy person that I had to be for a few moments in time. I want to be known as a, as a clean person, as an honorable person. That's his analogy. If God has come and he's pursued you, this broken person that you are, that I am, and he's basically like, let me take those clothes that are not fitting for you, my child. Let me take those. Let me clothe you in my righteousness, in my holiness. Then Paul's point is, as we walk the Christian life, remember that word from the, from the first verse here, as we walk the Christian life, then what we're trying to practice, because it's true of us, is I want to be putting off and I want to be putting on. And let me just quickly tell you three things that we do instead of putting off, being renewed in the spirit of our minds and putting on. Here's what we do. Number one, we don't put off. We just add the put on. So we we don't take off the old person that we were. We just put on Jesus-y stuff, Christian-y stuff, moral stuff. And we're these compromisers that it's like, do I lie? Yeah, a little bit. Am I materialistic? Am I greedy? Yeah, yeah, kind of. But but I go to church and I read my Bible. Do you see what I'm saying? Like there's, there's this mix where we haven't really put off the old person that we were. We've merely added some attributes of the new person. Uh, so we still have the coveralls and there's filth, but it's like, but what do you think of my new necktie? <laughs> Jesus is like, yeah, I see your necktie. Do you realize I have something so much better planned for your life than throwing on a few new articles of clothing with all that mess? So we don't put off, we just add. Another thing we do instead of putting off being renewed and putting on is we put off the old, we wait a minute, and then we put it right back on. I miss being angry all the time. I miss being frustrated all the time. I miss being able to hold on to that hurt of what that person did to me. And, and you see it laying there, and kind of instead of just incinerating this garbage over here, um, you're like... I want to keep it there just in case. I want to put it back on. Or thirdly, we put off the bad and put on the new, but don't really receive this renewal of our minds. And by the way, of this whole section where he's like, put off, be renewed, put on, I will point out that be renewed is a passive verb, meaning it's something that's being done to you. Like, in some sense, you got to put off. You got to be like, I'm not going to say that, and I'm not going to do that. And I, God, help me stop thinking these ways, and I'm going to put this on. And where I wanted to say this, I'm just, going to speak different words instead as I become this new person. But this be renewed in the spirit of your mind, is a, is a, it's a receiving verb. It's like this is what Jesus wants to do to transform your patterns of thinking And I think sometimes we just, we put off the old, we put on the new, and there's no inner transformation. There's no inner renewal. What I liken this to is uh, everybody knows about REM sleep. Like REM is cool because you get the dreams and like just the bizarre stuff and you're falling and falling and falling. And then like you finally hit the ground and you wake up the person next to you if you're married. Okay, sorry. That's REM, okay. But you know, in deep sleep, What happens by God's design physiologically when you get deep sleep is your lymphatic system flushes your brain of toxins. Do you know that? Like just goes through and like collects all this like physical garbage that the cells of your brain are putting off, flushes it and lets your body flush it out. That happens during deep sleep. And I think of this work of Jesus as like the the spiritual version of that physiologically, where he's like, when you are in your deepest sleep, kind of not responsible for anything. You're not actively doing anything. You're in deep sleep. I'm doing this work in your brain, but I'm also doing this work in your mind, if that makes sense. Like physically, your brain needs this or you will be a very sick person But spiritually, your mind, your thinking needs this, or you will be a very sick person spiritually. So don't hang on to the old and just add some new Jesus-y stuff. Don't put it off and keep it kind of waiting in the wings in case you miss it and want to put it back on. Don't just do this moralistic trade of like, there, I took off the bad stuff and I put on the good stuff, but I never really showered in between. And let God really renew me. Okay? Get your mind right. Get your mind right. Because while we rest in Christ, he is working to renew our minds over and over again. There's a battleground for our minds. I think you get that in our culture. Where what we have a tendency to do now in a very progressive place like Denver, is we we put off this old person, but what the old person is is not the former person apart from Christ. It's like the traditional person, and we think we're putting on Christ, but really we're just putting on a more progressive version of ourselves. We're putting on a different ideology, which is something else we need to be careful about, to make sure that, Lord, as you renew my thinking, I want to put on Jesus. I want to seek education How did Christianity ever get this reputation, especially in Western cultures, of being like an anti-intellectual religion when Paul says it's about your mind, it's about thinking, it's about understanding, it's about being taught. We should be for education. But as we get an education, we should be for experiencing God. So you can respond this morning something like this. If you, if you look at yourself and you say, there, there is a hardness of heart. And what that looks like in my life is a stubbornness of like, I know that this one thing is wrong, but I like it and I'm going to keep doing it. Or I know that God is calling me to do this, but I, but I don't like that and I'm not going to do that. And what I'm praying this morning, and I hope many of you are praying is, God, either break my heart or soften my heart. I don't want to have a hard heart that leads to an ignorance, an imperception of your beauty and your wonder and your love for me. So break my heart or soften my heart. I come to you, Jesus, asking for this renewal of my patterns of thinking.